Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I am your host, Dr. M. This is podcast number 34. Today, I have the special privilege of speaking with Dr. Stefan Guillenet. Dr. Guillenet is a neuroscience researcher who did his undergraduate work in biochemistry at the University of Virginia before heading on for his doctorate in neuroscience at the University of Washington. He has been studying the neuroscience of eating behaviors and obesity for over a decade. His research has been published in many scientific journals, and he is the author of a 2017 book called The Hungry Brain. He states that his mission is to advance science and public health as a researcher, science consultant, and science communicator. And in this episode, you'll really get a nice understanding of how well he does communicate the current science and what is happening in the world and the landscape of weight gain, hunger, taste signals, and the neuroscience related to all of it. He is also the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which publishes the most informative and consistent unbiased popular health and nutrition book reviews in the country. As this podcast is part four of the obesity series, we're going to look specifically this time at the neuroscience of why we make decisions that we make and how, to some extent, the food that we're being offered in society now has hijacked some of our primal neurological instincts for survival. And that then leads to the downstream effects that we see in society as excessive weight gain, leading to problems of metabolic and immune health. So it's a very critical conversation to have to help us all understand that there are some forces playing against us. And that makes it even all the more difficult for physicians and uh, people alike to make the decisions we need to mitigate risk upstream and downstream. And what we should know as physicians when we talk to our patients about what the struggles are and their struggles and what we can do to help each individual make better choices knowing these facts. So with that backdrop, let's get started with Dr. Stefan Guillenet. Well, Stefan Guillenet, uh, welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm grateful to have you here today to discuss all things related to, you know, why we choose to eat, um, the hungry brain, your book, and many other things that you have wrapped up in your brain. I'd love to uh peel that onion in there. So welcome. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I want to start by reading from an article you wrote uh, back uh, with Dr. Schwartz in 2012 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And in there you stated, obesity has emerged as one of the leading medical challenges of the 21st century. The resistance of this disorder to effective long-term treatment can be traced to the fact that Body fat stores are subject to homeostatic regulation in obese individuals, just as in lean individuals. Because the growing obesity epidemic is linked to a substantial increase in daily energy intake, a key priority is to delineate how mechanisms governing food intake and body fat content are altered in an obesogenic environment. So you specifically have been looking at these mechanisms for years uh, during your work in your PhD and, and subsequently, and then you covered a lot of this in your book, The Hungry Brain, a few years back. So I want to turn you loose by starting with, let's just define for the community at large what obesity is, and let's segue into your work in neuroscience and the behaviors that are shifting the phenotype of humans, as in, especially in the industrialized world in the last 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. So obesity in the simplest definition is an excess of fat on the body. Um, but there's a lot of devil in the details of defining what constitutes an excess because humans uh, compared to our primate relatives like chimpanzees, even a lean human is quite fat. And so what, what is an excess of, of body fat? And typically conceptually, the way we think about excess is something that creates some kind of impairment or health condition. And so maybe you're not able to do the activities you would like to do. Maybe you have a higher risk of type two diabetes or cardiovascular disease or osteoarthritis, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, 
there are thresholds that have been defined for what constitutes obesity. And the most common that are used are is, is based on the body mass index, which is basically your weight corrected for height. And the thresholds that are used are um, normal weight is 18.5 to 25, overweight is 25 to 30, and then 30 and over is considered obesity. And then there are different classes of obesity depending on where you are over, over 30. And so essentially, if you have a BMI over 30, that implies that you are at risk of some of these harms from excess body fatness. And just to, to clarify, body mass index is a pretty crude measurement tool. It's not measuring your body composition. So, you know, just an example I like to give is that Arnold Schwarzenegger at the peak of his bodybuilding career was, had a BMI of like 30.1. So he would have been considered to have obesity, even though his body fat percentage was in the single digits when he was in competition shape. And so, but most people aren't Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So it, it accurately classifies people most of the time, but you have to use some common sense and, you know, maybe a mirror and a, um, a uh, measuring tape around the waist to kind of contextualize body mass index. Right. And just to kind of like set the frame here, I know you're interested in evolutionary framing, right? So um, we've seen a very large increase in the prevalence of obesity over the last, uh, you know, really since the seventies, uh, but even if you go back before that, it was already increasing even before that. And if you look at non-industrial populations, populations that are living still hunter gatherer lifestyles or subsistence agriculturalists, obesity is, is pretty uncommon. And we think that that was the case for almost all of human existence. And so the current situation that we're in is not, let's say, evolutionarily typical for a human in terms of uh, the prevalence of obesity. There's a lot more obesity than there would have been in deep human history. And so what that implies is that the higher body fatness that we have today is something called an evolutionary mismatch. So our genes haven't really changed that much over the last few generations, but we've gotten a lot fatter. And that implies that something about our environment is um, what causes us to get fatter. And we can say that's an evolutionary mismatch, which means basically, you know, our genes that served us well for a long time are just not well matched to our current environment that we're living in. And that's causing us problems in this case, in the form of high rates of obesity. Yeah. And I tend to think of that as like the polar bear in the desert. You know, our genes are not mistaken. It's just, we've moved from either a location to a location that increases our risk of being in the wrong genetic environmental situation or the, the system has changed. And I know from reading a lot of your work that you've stated that, you know, the system is really geared evolutionarily to protect against starvation, which was the number one reason humans struggled for millennia. It was never an issue in general that obesity was a, a, a system pressure and therefore evolution would cause our genes to change in order to handle that system pressure with it, with the exception of probably the most recent past. And, and, and that probably hasn't given us enough time to change those genes yet. Um, but that is sort of, to me, the big piece of this pie, why we're so mismatched evolutionarily, because it is thousands of years of living in starvation issues. Now, all of a sudden in 50 to hundred years of all of a sudden, that's never an issue. Caloric, you know, the inability to find calories is almost non-existent in most countries. So let's start there and look at your definitions as you've split it into homeostatic versus the non-homeostatic reason why we eat. Because you've really honed in on tremendous neuroscience understanding of why humans choose to eat. I think for the listeners, this gets into the most fundamental reason why we're making mistakes in our choices, but how our brains are hijacking our choices too. Yeah. And I want to just take one step back as well, just to make sure that everyone's coming along conceptually. Um, you know, we, 
eat ourselves into a lot of problems in, in our culture. We consume more food than is optimal for our health, more food than is optimal for our well being, for our physical and cognitive performance. But we don't want to do that, right? Like, if you ask somebody, do you want to overconsume food and gain fat as you age? Very few people would say yes, right? Um, yet that is the behavior that we express anyway, right? So that's pretty strange, isn't it? That we're mm -hmm. doing something on that really like multiple times per day that we don't want to be doing. And so what that implies is that there's this conflict between different parts of our brain. There's a part of your brain that is the conscious, deliberate, rational part that understands that eating too much food is not good and we don't want to be doing it. We want to be slim and, and healthy and not have diabetes in 20 years. And then there's other parts of your brain that say, I'm hungry and that food looks tasty and it's right there and I want to eat it. And so there's this kind of internal conflict between different brain systems. And my book is an attempt to kind of catalog some of the important brain systems that are in that second category, these kind of intuitive, non-conscious brain processes that are pushing us to overconsume in the, in the modern environment. So just to give a quick example, you know, you don't decide that you're going to be hungry, right? That's just something that arises from your brain activity and you feel it. You don't decide that you're going to have a craving for chocolate. You don't say, well, I think I want to have a chocolate craving now. So I'll, I'll experience that. No, that's something that arises from parts of your brain that you have very little control over. You just experience the output of those non-conscious systems. And so there's a lot of stuff like this that happens in our brain. Most of the stuff the brain does is not conscious. We're only experiencing the, you know, kind of like upper crust of brain activity. Um, and this stuff, it, it affects our behavior profoundly. Um, you know, just based on the two examples I gave the hunger and the craving, those are two great examples of how it affects our behavior profoundly. And so, um, so that's just a kind of like framing to understand the importance of, of this general topic for, for the audience. So you, uh, so these, these brain processes that are kind of automatic, intuitive, non-conscious that push us in the wrong direction in the modern food environment. Um, I classify them into two general categories, which you mentioned, which is the homeostatic and the non-homeostatic. And this is just a conceptual way of categorizing these different processes. So the homeostatic ones are explicitly concerned with regulating the body's energy status. So their purpose is to make sure that your body has enough energy and to some degree doesn't have too much energy in, inside it and available for its metabolic processes. And then the non-homeostatic non processes that impact food intake is everything else. So that's just like the catch-all for stuff that affects your food intake, but is not directly linked to your body's energy status. So um, the homeostatic processes, we have, we can break that down into two further categories. There's the short-term regulation and the long-term regulation. The short-term regulation is your meal-to-meal -meal regulation on a, on a meal-to-meal -meal basis. So that is uh, revolves around your, the system that regulates your satiety and satiation. So how much food are you going to eat when you sit down to a meal and, uh, how long are you going to be uninterested in food following that specific meal? So that refers to the sati satiation and the satiety. And that is a system that is located in your brainstem and that receives lots of input not surprisingly, from your digestive tract, from your mouth, your upper small intestine, your stomach that tells your brain how much food is in your digestive tract and what kind of food is in there. And all those signals, lots of information goes up your vagus nerve and converges in your brainstem and is processed. And that information is sent to many different brain regions for, for different purposes. 
Uh, but for our purposes here, it determines your remaining motivation to eat. So you take, you know, each bite you take, your motivation goes down and down and down and down until finally you don't, you're not motivated to eat at all anymore. You put the fork down and you go do something else. And so um, that's one system. And then we have the long-term system, which is, I refer to as the lipostat, which is uh, lipo is fat and stat is the same. So that's the system that regulates your body fat mass. And this is a, for, for people who uh, know this technical term, it's a negative feedback regulatory system, similar to how your home thermostat works. This is just a really common, simple regulatory design for maintaining the stability of a particular variable, in this case, body fat stores. And the way this works is that you're, well, the, a key way in which this works, I should say, because the system is more complex, but a key way that this works is that your fat tissue secretes a hormone called leptin. It goes in your bloodstream in proportion to the amount of fat you carry. So more fat equals more leptin, less fat is less leptin. And then your brain, a part of your brain called the, the hypothalamus particularly gets that signal and determines how to regulate you, uh, based on that. And so, for example, it can set the gain on your satiety system. So if you're, if you've been dieting for a while, your lipostat can tell your satiety system, okay, now we're going to require more food at each meal for you to experience the sensation of fullness. And for you to want to stop eating, we're going to need to to have more food each meal or else you're not going to feel satisfied. And, uh, and it, it does other things too. It biases your attention toward calorie dense food. It, um, increases your, uh, your like cravings for certain types of food. It can curtail your energy expenditure. In other words, your, your metabolic rate, the number of calories your body is burning. Um, and, and though it mostly resists fat loss, the system mostly is designed to resist fat loss. So, um, if you, if a person tries to lose weight, as you were referring to in that quote, you read initially, the person starts to lose weight, this system activates what I call the starvation response, which, um, increases appetite, increases interest in food, curtails metabolic rate and brings fat back into fat tissue, brings back to lost fat. And the thing that's really kind of cruel about this is that this system appears to be just as operational in people with obesity as in lean people. So a person with obesity, the set point on the system is just higher. So if they try to lose fat, this system is going to activate the starvation response, just like a lean person. And so that's a major reason why you see in study weight loss trials, people tend to regain a lot of the weight they lost. If there was no regulatory system, people wouldn't bounce back up. They would just kind of, if you could lose weight, it would be easy to stay there. But what's happening is that the system actively opposes that weight loss and tries to get people to, to gain weight back. So that's a, that's an overview of the homeostatic system. And there are a number of ways in which our modern environment impacts, uh, those two homeostatic systems. I think we understand the ways that the modern environment interacts with the satiety system better than how it interacts with the lipostat. There's still a lot we have to learn about the lipostat and how it changes in obesity, exactly what counts for that. And then on the non-homeostatic side, there's a, a lot of different things we could talk about, but one key one that I think is important is the reward system. This is the system that um, values certain food properties and sets your motivation accordingly. And so just to give you an intuitive example of that, we understand that if you put a scoop of ice cream and a piece of celery in front of a young child, they're going to eat the ice cream and ignore the celery, right? 
why is that? I mean, that's not, that's not just random. It's because of the physical and chemical properties of those two foods and how they are valued intuitively by the human brain. And so there are certain food properties, uh, essentially the way it works is that, uh, the motivation chemical in your brain, dopamine responds to specific food properties that we are hardwired to respond to. These are carbohydrate, fat, protein, salt, and glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor. And there may be others too, but those are the ones that have, that are either known or suspected to cause dopamine release. And, um, and it's a concentration dependent process. So if you have more fat, more carbohydrate, especially if those are paired together in the same food, you get more dopamine release. There's little sensors in your gut that start firing, send a signal to your brain, it goes up and it, and, uh, it goes up to your, uh, um, your substantia nigra and your VTA, and it starts dumping dopamine into your, into your, uh, striatum and other parts of your brain that are key for motivation and learning. And then you will be motivated to eat the food that contains those things. And you will learn to become motivated when they're available in your environment. So if next time you smell that slice of pizza or you see the box of ice cream or whatever, those sensory cues become motivational triggers. That's called Pavlovian or classical conditioning. And those trigger your dopamine release again and trigger your motivation to acquire those foods. And yeah. so in your in your um, your blog that I read, you had a really interesting discussion around when you had animal when you had an animal model that didn't have the ability to have that dopamine response, that they had a very different way of existing and living. Talk about that a little bit because I think that'll give people a, a really good understanding of how powerful the dopamine reinforcement system is. That positive feedback loop. Are you talking about the laziest mice in the world? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So uh, a researcher named Richard Palmiter at the University of Washington generated mice that have, that do not have the ability to make dopamine in the brain. And these mice will literally just sit there in their cages, not doing anything until you give them a chemical treatment that replaces their dopamine. And what they have to do is they give it, they give them this stuff once a day, this chemical that allows them to make dopamine. And then the mice run around like mad and eat food and do all the stuff. And then once they run out, they just stop moving again. And so it's dopamine is a chemical that energizes your motivation and allows you to learn on, on a kind of like basic intuitive level. And without that, these animals have so little motivation that they literally cannot do anything. They can't even move. They probably can't even think, honestly. They can't, literally their brains do not perform any activity, most likely. We don't know exactly what's going on in their heads, but there are humans who have damage to some parts of their brain that are, that are in the same signaling pathway. I talk about this in the book as well. And these people, um, and there, there are drugs that you can give them that kind of like activate the system again. And these people will sit there in a chair, just like indefinitely just existing. And you can ask them what they were thinking about They Sometimes they will respond to questions and they'll say nothing. There was nothing in their mind. Nothing was happening in their brain. So that's, that's how powerful dopamine and the systems it acts on are like they are motivation incarnate and, um, and learning how to become motivation, learning how to become motivated and what to be motivated by. And so that this is the essence of addiction. This is why all, um, addictive drugs act on the dopamine system, because that's why those drugs are addictive. They literally short circuit your motivational systems. Yeah, I find that exceedingly fascinating that the foods and the the nutrients, even the umami, 
flavoring that trigger the dopamine release are the same exact molecules and 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 macronutrients that trigger rick johnson's work in the survival switch in the liver turning on hepatic uh uh uh, fat deposition and higher blood pressures and a lot of things that we see that drive metabolic syndrome, including inflammation. So there's there, there's not a uh, an error here of uh, human, you know, fat physiology. It's just the fact that as you're going to get into even more of these non-homeostatic decision-making pieces that we have not much control over, as you stated, are, are really hampering our system. So yeah, keep going on that. I mean, if you want to touch on 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 how satiety, you know, is being hijacked um, in general, let's see where this goes. Yeah, so I think the problem really with the the modern environment and how it interacts with these um, circuits that regulate eating really is on both sides. It's on the homeostatic side and it's on the non-homeostatic side, and I think the the homeostatic side, I think in some ways is pretty easy to understand. So this system in our brainstem that regulates satiety and satiation, that feeling of fullness and not wanting to eat after a meal, that system responds to specific signals that ascend from the digestive tract as you eat food. And those signals depend on what you're eating. And so the interesting thing about it is that there's not a tight correlation between the amount of satiety and satiation that you feel and the number of calories that you've eaten. It really depends on where those calories are coming from. So researchers have um, looked at this using a number of common foods. And what they find is that foods that have a higher calorie density, in other words, more calories per gram or per volume, produce less satiety per calorie. So basically what that means is for the same number of calories, a high calorie density food fills up your stomach less. There's less volume. It's filling your stomach less. Whereas a low calorie density item is going to fill up your stomach more for the same number of calories. And so that's going to be more, have a higher satiety value per calorie foods with more protein and more fiber have greater satiety value per calorie and foods that are uh, lower in palatability. In other words, don't taste amazing, have higher satiety per calorie. So if you put that together, the, the picture that you paint for the lowest satiety foods per calorie are foods that have high calorie density, low fiber, low protein, and are highly palatable. And that basically describes what we intuitively recognize as junk food, right? Like I just described a Snickers bar. I just described French fries. I just described chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, and, and then on the flip side, foods with the opposite properties and high satiety per calorie, I'm talking about, uh, lean meats, fresh fruits, whole grains, eggs, um, you know, foods that we intuitively recognize as unprocessed natural and, and healthier foods. So I think, what researchers have uncovered kind of jives very well with our intuitions about what food is, you know, healthy and slimming versus not. Um, so I think that is a big part of it right there. I think we simply eat food that is not very satiating per unit calorie. And so by the time we feel full at a meal, we've consumed a lot more calories than we need to, than our bodies need. So I think, I think that's part of the issue. Modern food is very refined, highly palatable, calorie dense, tends to be. Um, and then also on the homeostatic side, once a person develops obesity, it's a self-sustaining state. So the lipostat will actually act to maintain the obese state. 
So it will keep your calorie intake high in order to maintain that higher level of, of body fatness. Let's dive deeper here. Cause I think this is critical humans. This lipostat set point has been again around for millennia, but all of a sudden that set point is in theory or in scientific discovery going up. And that's not a genetic phenomenon. That's clearly an epigenetic phenomenon. What is driving the lipostat to keep upping itself so that therefore when you try and lose weight, the lipostat fights against you by telling you, no, you're not going to starve. I'm going to keep you holding on to this fat. So it just drops your metabolic rate, everything else to survive. What's the, what's going on there? Yeah. So I think the first thing to observe is that the lipostat is different from the thermostat in your home in the sense that the thermostat in your home, if you set it to 70 degrees, it's going to stay at 70 degrees forever until you, you change it, right? It's like this precise, stable regulatory system. Unfortunately, the human hypothalamus is not like that. And we recognize this. Many people gain fat throughout the course of their lives. Uh, most people do in, in the United States and other affluent countries. You start off with a system that is actively defending a lean body, and you end up, in many cases, with a system that is actively defending a body with obesity. And so something is clearly changing about this, you know, regulatory process. And, you know, I'll be honest, we really don't know a lot about these specific mechanisms of how that happens. I have some guesses that I, that I put in the book. I think some, let's call it logical speculation based on some evidence that we have, but we don't really know for sure what causes that. One of the things that we've noted in, in the research that I participated in with Mike Schwartz in his lab is there is an increase in inflammation in the hypothalamus, this part of the brain that regulates body fatness. We see this in uh, mice, we see it in rats, and we see it in humans, both uh, tissue from cadavers, as well as um, MRI studies of people who are alive at, at different body mass index. And um, yeah, so it's, you know, and, and there are studies suggesting that if you can, in, in mice, if you can shut this inflammation off in the hypothalamus, they don't get as fat. So we think that this is part of the answer, not necessarily the whole answer, but this inflammation could be part of the mechanism that causes that to happen. Yeah. Can, if you can, can we dive a little deeper here? What do we know is driving the inflammation? Is it mitochondrial damage, oxidative stress? Is it cellular uh, changes that are then releasing, uh, let's say a, a cell's breaking down there. So it's releasing its DNA and ATP into the local environment, which triggering innate immunity. Do we know that answer? No, not really. Um, at least I don't know it. And I'm not aware that anyone knows it. Um, there have been some hypotheses. I don't think any of them have been really well borne out. But I will say that um, you also see inflammation in certain other conditions that um, impact neuronal remodeling. So remodeling of brain regions and neurons like addiction, for example. In addiction, you see inflammation in the parts of the brain that are implicated in addiction. And so it may just be part of a remodeling process. I'm not really sure, or it could have to do some, there's some evidence that it could relate to some of the fatty acids that are in the types of food that we give animals to make them develop obesity. Um, so those are some ideas, but I don't think we really know. Yeah, I'm curious to watch again. I, I go back to, to Rick Johnson's work on uric acid. I find it in, in incredibly fascinating because uric acid is, an, is a massive trigger of innate inflammasome activity through NLRP3. And I wonder, because uric acid is being driven by many things, principally fructose, but also uh, excess amounts of just glucose plus salt, 
you know, essentially all the things you're talking about in this modern processed, highly ultra processed foods, if there is a higher circulating uric acid level that somehow finds its way to, to the hypothalamus and driving mitochondrial damage, again, to your point, we have no idea, but complete hypothesis, but I, I I'm finding that this stuff very intriguing um, and, and, you know, we, I wait to see what the answers are, but yeah, so fascinating. So that's leading to, you know, to what you were saying, this leptin resistance, which is then messing up satiety. Um, evolutionarily, what would be the advantage of having satiety at all? So you're not so fat, you can run away. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out even if there's a reason to feel full historically. Yeah. 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 I think there are reasons. I mean, the digestive tract has a certain capacity, right? And if you overconsume, that can actually tax your, your body physiologically, both your digestive tract and the rest of your body that has to absorb all of these nutrients. And so there are good reasons to kind of set a limit on meal to meal intake. And then there are also some pretty good reasons to set a limit on uh, your long-term calorie intake and your, your body fatness. I mean, if you think about it, having a lot of extra body fat, if you're a hunter gatherer, that would be really bad for you actually, right. because those people have to walk like eight miles a day and run and climb and jump. They're climbing trees to get, you know, honey. Uh, and they have to fight each other and hunt and, and gather and, and hopefully not develop diabetes and other <laughs> fat links conditions. And so, I mean, there are absolutely, and, and, you know, further back in our evolutionary history, we were also prey. Right. So that, that kind of ended once we got really good with, with weapons, but uh, you know, with tools and including weapons, but further back, we were prey so that, you know, you got to be able to run away too. And even, even, you know, more recently, you have to be able to run away from other humans sometimes too. So um, there, there are definitely downsides to having excess body fatness. However, those downsides, I think were just rarely experienced in deep human history because most people just because accumulating that much fat was just very rare because of the way that we lived. I mean, if you think about a hunter gatherer, they, in terms of how they acquire energy calories, they live lives that are profoundly different than how we live. So today it's very easy to acquire energy. We, in the modern United States, the average person spends something like 10% of their disposable income on food. So let's say, you know, let's just say that 10% of your workday is dedicated to acquiring food. Whereas for a hunter gatherer, that's like almost a full-time job for them acquiring food. That is what they do. Mostly they do other stuff too, but that's the main thing they do. That would be like, if, you know, you were spending like 80% of your income on food and um, they furthermore, every item of food they collect requires effort and time. And so, you know, if you go out, you have to, you know, if you want to eat some berries, you have to go out and pick them. If you want to eat uh, a caribou, you have to go out and, and hunt it. And if you're not that motivated, you're not going to do it. Right. And if you're not that hungry, which generates that motivation, you're not going to do it. So, you know, like the bar for them actually like, why, why would you keep gathering food if you already have enough? There's just no reason to do that if you're a hunter-gatherer to incur that time and effort and risk of going out if you've already had enough. So, like, obesity is, like, a non, practically a non-issue in hunter-gatherers. just, like, doesn't even, hardly even make sense how you could get there. And so I think there are systems that we have and that different people have to varying degrees that protect us against excess fat, but they're just a lot weaker because it just wasn't as much of a problem evolutionarily. Whereas right. not getting enough food, that was a big problem. If you look at um, data from um, children in non-industrial 
settings, low income settings today, underweight is a major risk factor for mortality. It's a huge risk factor for mortality and not getting enough food is constantly on people's minds and it, because it's a real threat. And so um, that was something that killed a lot of people and not only killed, but also uh, put limits on reproduction and reproduction is the currency of natural selection. And so we have these systems that were selected in an environment where not getting enough was this really potent threat. Getting too much was almost like a non-issue. So we just have systems that are very biased in the direction of protecting against weight loss rather than weight gain. And I think that's why many of us just kind of gradually gain weight as we age, which is not something you see typically in most hunter gatherer cultures, just because this, these systems weren't designed for this environment. They weren't, they do protect us to some extent against weight gain, but not, not really effectively enough to prevent that slow process from happening. So talk a bit, cause this is segueing into something else I wanted to ask you, cause you had written about holiday activities driving that lipostat set point change or that inherent fat mass change that then therefore drives this dysfunction over time. Because I, I think people look at the holidays as just, oh, it's just a time when I cheat and it's no big deal. And then I get right back to my normal reality. But that's not true based on what you're stating, that, that those moments in time are clear changes in our physiology long-term. Yeah, I think this is this is kind of my best guess as to what's going on. Um, that kind of ratchets our weight up year after year in terms of the mechanism of it. And let me just be really clear that this is not like uh, a fact. These are not facts that I'm stating. These are logical conclusions based on the research that remain very uncertain. So I don't want anybody to take this as gospel. This is the reason. This is just my best working guess right now. Um, Duly noted. Yeah. Um, what you see in the studies that track people's weight throughout the course of the year is that people in countries, affluent countries like the U.S. and European countries, gain weight around the holiday period. So in the U.S., it's a six-week period starting with Thanksgiving and ending with New Year's. People will gain, uh, I think I'm trying to remember what it is, like about a pound, one or two pounds on average. And then they will lose like mo or um, a little less than half of that in January and February. But that, that remainder sticks with them. It's like half a pound, something like that. And each year they add to it again that so that it ratchets up every year by like half a pound or a pound. And this is on average, by the way. So some people are, do, are gaining weight. Some people are not. So the people who do gain weight, it's probably larger than that on average for them. Um, and every year it just ratchets up and that's their new set point. And then it goes up again, the next holiday period and it goes up again, the next holiday period. But that is the time period, that six week period of the year is the period during which people gain the majority of the weight that they will gain for the entire year on average. And so really, I think that is a great place to focus your efforts if you're trying not to gain fat. Yeah. And I think about that from the perspective of each year's weight gain that doesn't go away becomes another metabolically active source of inflammation. If the fat that you're generating is being driven again, which is from my immunologic uh, understanding is that that type of fat can be immunologically active. If you are consuming the wrong foods that are driving it down that pathway, that, that over time, this becomes maybe another piece in that discussion point around the hypothalamic changes at that's that set point. So I think it's all tied together. Again, I, I agree. We don't understand the mechanisms well yet, but it's, it's clearly a big issue. And I think for me, the take-home point is folks, when you're sitting there at Christmas and Thanksgiving, back to back to back, plus the, the Christmas office parties, all these other things, these are 
downstream effects that you will have a hard time losing. And, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. So, so I just want to wrap up what I was saying. Um, yeah. Sorry, before, before we move on, because what I, what I was talking about there with the holiday eating and the holiday weight gain, that was the part that's not speculative. That was just the empirical observations. But the part that is speculative is why that happens. And um, what you see from the rodent research is that if you, and, and also actually human randomized controlled trials, if you overfeed people or animals, like you ask people to overeat for a certain period of time, when you stop asking them to overeat, they will lose most of that weight, but some of it will be retained. And so it's like overeating itself causes the set point to go up a little bit. The system reacts and brings you back down, but not all the way, at least on average. And again, it depends on the individual. And, uh, and in the rodent research, what it suggests is that you, um, there's like this two hit where when you overconsume calories, you are increasing leptin levels and that higher level of leptin may actually be contributing to the leptin resistance. You're like desensitizing your leptin receptors by these bol big boluses of leptin from overconsumption. And, but there's a second hit because that only seems to happen in the context of poor diet quality in, in rodents. Again, these data are in rodents. Um, so you only really see that when they're on a kind of unhealthy fattening type of diet. So there's something about, there's a second hit in the diet related to diet quality that seems to be required. So it's overconsumption driving leptin up temporarily. And then it's also some aspect of diet quality that is the second hit that is kind of locking in that leptin resistance. So that's, that part is the guess. Right. Or the and speculation. So, right. Right. And so, you know, you have a great diagram on your website that I'm going to share with everyone afterwards. But, you know, so we sort of talked about this, you know, food intake, what drives it, motor systems. And then you have a big circle that says reward system, which is motivation reinforcement. We've talked about energy homeostatic systems. We've talked about satiety. We've talked about hedonic system with palatability, you know, drugs. I know there are antipsychotics that do change the set point, but we haven't gotten into the world of cognition and emotion, which I think, again, is another big, big player in this world, especially because again, in my world of kids, especially children who are living in adverse childhood experiences, sort of what we call these ACEs, we tend to see a higher preponderance of, of weight gain concerns. And then, you know, you just take COVID, you know, what a social emotional nightmare happened to these poor kids for two years, you know, in Charlotte, 10,000 kids for over a calendar year did not see a single teacher. And, and that year loss was, you know, some of these kids got back into home all day long with their parent who may have been abusive, maybe those drugs, maybe it was something. And so their home away from home, which was school was their ability to de-stress and relax was non-existent. So go down that road a little bit, because I think that's a very important piece of this, this diagram as you laid it out towards, you know, food. Yeah, absolutely. So I talk about it from in my book from the perspective of stress and i think that could be conceptualized as you know conceptualized broadly uh for the purposes of this conversation um but yeah there are a couple of different reasons um why stress can produce this response so well first let me define that stress can have different effects depending on the person and the scenario so Sometimes stress increases food intake and sometimes it decreases food intake. Like you see this in animals and in people. If, if you're sufficiently stressed out, like extremely stressed out, usually that actually cuts your appetite and, and produces weight loss under extreme stress conditions. But what you, um, what you see actually more often under kind of more chronic stress conditions is people over consuming food and shifting their eating behavior towards specific kinds of food that tends to be more fattening, what we call comfort foods. And uh, comfort foods work. 
<laughs> they actually do help reduce stress. That's, I mean, that's the blessing and the problem, right? right. And you think about all the things you could do to reduce stress, like you could go for a jog or you could eat a bunch of chocolate chip cookies. And which is the one that's easiest to do when you're feeling like crap yeah. is eating the cookies, right? right? So even though the jog might be better in the long run, more constructive for your health, it's just harder to motivate, especially when you're in that kind of state. And um, so, yeah, so comfort foods really work. There's even animal models of this and they can observe that uh, these foods that the animals really like, they decrease um, uh, stress signaling in the amygdala. You can actually observe this in the brain. So it really works. It makes you feel better. And on a you know neuroscientific level, you can observe this happening in the brain. And um, so I think that's part of it is people will just shift toward eating foods that are more fattening because they are comforting. And then I think another part of it is that, well, I think probably another part of it is that um, stress causes the release of a hormone called cortisol. That's uh, an integral part of the stress response, particularly the chronic stress response. And cortisol appears to dampen leptin signaling in the hypothalamus. And you see this, uh, this is an extreme example, but if, when you put people on um, corticosteroids, uh, high enough doses, they will often gain weight and particularly around the, the midsection. So in a medical context, put people on steroid type drugs, they will often gain weight around the midsection. And, um, the idea here is that the lower levels of cortisol that are produced during chronic everyday stress could also be producing an effect like this. I don't think the evidence there is like home run strong, but I think it's pretty suggestive that that is probably a mechanism by which people are gaining fat, but not only gaining fat, gaining it in a particularly unhealthy way around the midsection and, and in the abdominal, inside the abdominal cavity. Yeah, what I find fascinating there again is you're tying into the immunology world because when chronic stress occurs, that cortisol response element keeps getting hit by cortisol. And that actually has a feed forward effect on changing uh, the immune polarity within the nucleus. And these cells start to pump out tons of nuclear factor kappa B, which is one of the main inflamers of the system. And so I think, again, you know, part of that may be the, the serum level of NF-kappa B rises, and maybe that's another reason behind leptin resistance and clearly has effect on adipocytes and, and many other parts of the system. But I think it's all tied together. And to your point, you know, we're working and learning these different mechanisms and, you know, the neuroscience side, like you're talking about, is, is the part that's relatively controllable, right? And I want to say that relatively, if you're a child living in a home that is loaded with stress, that's not really easily controllable unless you can learn to meditate and, and you know, do some of the things that could help you become somewhat resilient to that reality. But over time, they are somewhat controllable. But I think, you know, based on your work, it's so fascinating because you looked at this again, because the way I see things evolutionarily, I think you've looked at it from all of the mechanisms behind why these things would exist in the first place. Why has a human body developed these systems of, of, of control that now no longer work? And you've laid it beautifully out in your book and, and, and in your blog and many other places, as I've heard you speak, um, you know, that this is, this is the news to use for folks. You know, the system is a polar bear in the desert. We are literally, we've done this to ourselves, unfortunately. And there's sociopolitical reasons behind why ultra processed food is what it is, but it still is up to us to make the decisions as parents again, because I, I don't blame a 10 year old child for choosing a soda and a Big Mac, because to your point, that's what our systems want. But I have to lay some blame at the parent's foot and say, hey, you know what? No, we have to make choices because if that food didn't have feed forward effects on disease, fine. No, who cares? Right. If, if weight gain was just a size appearance, it was it would be irrelevant. Nobody would care. 
but it's clear that that's not true. I mean, I have 10 year olds that have livers that look like an alcoholic in their fifties. I mean, so these things are detrimental. And when I see parents tell me that it's, oh, it's not that big of a deal, then I have to go into this whole reason as to why it is. So, you know, I, I think this is the key and your work is is very important for people to understand because if you understand how the brain works the neuroscience of why you've laid it out this way then it makes people more consciously aware of the decisions like clearly like the holidays i think that's so simple right like hey this is what we're seeing happening in humans and you know if we overfeed an animal like a human does the holidays this is so be conscious of that choice when you're there it's not so simple as january 1 you're going to have a you know, your new year's resolution and you're going to get rid of all of it in the two months, you've clearly shown that that's not true. So, you know, kudos to you and, and your research and the book and everything else you've done around this topic, because I, I, you know, I've talked to many different folks in the obesity land, you know, the, the obesity or what now folks are trying to call humans with weight gain landscape. And a lot of folks don't tie it together well you know, the way you have. And and it was one of the main impetus impetuses behind why I wanted you on this podcast. Because I think, you know, again, you come from it the way I like to see it thought of is that evolutionary landscape as to why do we have this reward system in place and what does feed it and how are we mismatched in our current environment. And, and these are all the big pieces that give folks the ability to make change because without the ability to be consciously making change, you don't even stand a chance because there's so the deck is stacked against us all, frankly. And, and it's very, very disheartening, you know, for me to see these kids just struggling, you know, mightily in their worlds. And, you know, for me, I try and tell parents all the time, hunger is probably your best friend. So if your kid won't eat what you put in front of them, that's fine. Let them go hungry. You know, when the next meal comes around, offer them the same good quality food. But yeah, you know, uh, it, it's, it's Stefan, it's really amazing what you've done. And again, I'm going to uh, push people towards your book and and your work. You know, if, if you have any last thoughts, I want to be conscious of your time. You know, we're right around an hour right now. Do you have any other great last thoughts you want to add that we didn't touch mm -hmm. on? Because you've, you've really gone down many of the places I wanted to go, but I know you have so much up in that head. We can go for another hour. I'll, I'll go as long as you want, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll riff on something that you said, just as a parting thought, I think, uh, one of the saddest things to me is kid food, that term yeah. and what it refers to. Like you go to a restaurant and you open up the menu and you look at the kids food section. And it's like the most unhealthy thing on the menu. It's always like grilled cheese or pizza or some kind of like pasta with no vegetables. And I understand like you, you know, parents, it's easier to feed kids that stuff. That's the stuff they want to eat. That's what their brains are programmed to value implicitly. The, right. the you know, refined calorie dense, high carb, high fat combos. And, but like, we have to resist the urge to just give in to that impulse at least, you know, regularly or else children are going to develop obesity and they're going to have, they're going to have health problems. I mean, yeah. kid food translation for that is junk food. Like, right. and in any other context, we would call it junk food, but we call it kid food. Like that's to me, that's like the last thing you would want to feed a child. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sort of segues into my last question. You know, if you uh, uh, if you had one ticket, a golden ticket to give to the president of Congress and have one legislative change that you deemed has to happen, you know, mine would be change school lunch. I think school lunch is the worst thing for these children. I would say absolutely no way should we feed these kids this stuff. What would you ask for? Oh, man. So like, regardless of real world feasibility. Yeah. Is this for children specifically, or are we talking nope. about for everybody? It could okay. be anything. I think I would say, like, put a tax on foods that are both calorie dense and combined carbs and fat, substantial tax, and use the extra money that that, that, that uh, the extra revenue that that generates to subsidize healthier foods. Yep. 
yeah, it, it is. It's quite amazing to me that we not only don't have any systems in place to look at these foods as being what they are, but we actually pay for it on the back end in insane dollars to control the healthcare costs that we're actually causing on the front end, especially when I look at the subsidization of the, the food, the, the staple crops that actually feed the ultra processed system. I mean, it's, it's such, it's such a mess. I, you know, I think your points are very well taken, you know, Stefan, you, you've written the hungry brain. I think it was back in 2017. Is that right? I'm trying to remember when it was published. Yeah, 2017 or 2018. I don't remember exactly. So you have that book out there for everyone to get a hold of, and I'm going to share a link to purchasing it. But also, um, how else can people follow you? You know, you, you're 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 a wealth of knowledge. If people wanted to keep up to date with what you're researching, studying, discussing, do you have a Twitter account? Do you uh, do you have anything else? Yeah, share a link to your blog too. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm most active on Twitter. I have a blog that I post to only occasionally these days. Only other thing that I'll mention is Red Pen Reviews, which is an organization uh, that I help run that um, publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased reviews of popular nutrition books available. So if anybody's interested in in high quality reviews of popular nutrition books, definitely check out Red Pen Reviews. Awesome. Awesome. And your Twitter handle is? It's S-G-U-I-E-N-E-T. G -U -Y -E -N -E -T. Awesome. Hey, uh, Stefan, it's been an absolute pleasure. One hour of my life that is, I don't ever want to give back. I'll keep this. <laughs> I appreciate you from All Seattle, right. Washington, on the other side of the country. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks, Chris. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. The neuroscience of something as tricky as excess weight gain or obesity is unbelievably fascinating and just gives us an appreciation for how difficult this problem is in our culture, frankly, in the world. If you get an opportunity, I highly encourage you to go to his website, Stefan Guillene, spelled S-T-E-P-H-A-N-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T.com. On his website, he has a tab there for resources. Now, he has other tabs there as well for his book, The Hungry Brain, which I highly encourage you to get, but also his Ideal Weight Program. When you look at the resources tab, he has incredibly good, solid blog information with references for topics like where do cravings come from, the hungry brain in the 21st century, why do we overeat, a neurobiological perspective, the U.S. diet, a historical perspective, obesity, old solutions for a new problem. He has a selected article called Seduced by Food, Obesity and the Human Brain. And in there, really nicely laid out are graphs looking at the trends in obesity over the past uh, 50 plus years and and really nice conversation in written form about you know what's happening to the human brain and obesity you know just a select section here if you if I can read it to you he basically says you know so what if we have this built-in system to regulate body fatness how does anyone become obese some researchers believe that energy homeostasis, energy homeostasis system defends against fat loss more effectively than fat gain. However, most obese people regulate their body fat just fine, but their brains defend it at a higher level than a lean person. Going back to that thermostat analogy, in obese people, it's like the temperature has been gradually turned up. That's why it's so hard to maintain weight loss. When body fat stores decline, the brain thinks it's starving even if fat mass remains high, and it acts to regain the lost fat. If we want to understand how to prevent and treat obesity first, we have to understand why obese people defend a higher level of fat mass than lean people. And so again, you can now read a lot of his thoughts at your leisure as well as listen to this podcast, but he has gone into depth in his blog here that goes through all of these discussion points that we talked about. Like, why is it so difficult to start losing weight? Well, clearly, evolutionarily, 
There is a reason that humans protected their body against fat loss. And likely that was during periods, again, of starvation and or intermittent periods of not having access to enough calories. So the body would become very, very good at holding on to that which it had previously. So slow down your metabolic rate to preserve that fat mass from disappearing. And again, now we have such such incredibly different uh, environmental factors of excess food consumption, more sitting on our, our rear ends and chairs, um, and, and many other upstream risk factors that make all of these genes no longer functional for us. But for me, I think it's time for us to start taking a harder look at every aspect of the weight gain conundrum that exists in humans. And this is a great place to start looking at his blog. So overall, I think wrapping up this four-part series, we, we really have looked at it from many different angles, and it's a daunting task to deal with weight gain in humans. But now we have some tools, now we have some ideas, and now we have some uh, neuroscientific understanding as to what the upstream targets are. And so with that, I'll leave you. I appreciate your hour and your diligence in learning from these experts. If you have an opportunity today and you like this podcast, please share it with one other person. And also, if you have an opportunity, go to Apple Podcasts and give it a review. It helps me understand if I'm on the right track with the topics and the guests that I'm bringing on for you to learn from. As always, thank you, thank you for your time. Hug those kids and have a fabulous day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. The podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Thank you again, and have a great day.